Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Easter. We talked about what it meant to believe in Jesus. And by believing in Jesus, you get this brand new life. And when you enter that new life, it comes with some shiny new things. Last week, Pastor Josh talked about new life, new identity. Remember the story of Peter? If you weren't here last week, you can check that out online. Today, I want to talk about this. When you get a new life in Jesus, you get the new call and capacity for mercy. Uh, In spring of 1985 in Gary, Indiana, there were four teenage girls. They ditched school. They were somewhere around sophomores in high school. They ditched school, broke into this elderly woman's house to rob her. They got $5. But in the midst of that, it became more than a robbery. One of them stabbed her multiple times, killing her. This woman was a Bible study teacher. She would invite people into her home to teach Bible studies. The girls got in under that, like, hey, we want to hear your stories. Robbed her, killed her. The girl that actually killed her, her name was Paula Cooper. She was just 15 years old at the time. There was actually no question about her guilt. I mean, that that part of the trial and court case took very little time. But what was unique about her case was she was the youngest one in the history of the state of Indiana to be sentenced to death. A sophomore in high school, 15 years old, and she was on death row. But that grandmother, her name was Ruth Pelkey. She had a grandson who was also a follower of Christ. His name was Bill. He was a 40-year-old steel worker. And Bill had this conviction There's no way that my grandmother, who was a Christian, would want this outcome for this 15-year-old girl. And because of that, in much protest to Bill's family, he rallied and campaigned for her to be removed from death row. And most of his family was like, no, 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 we are not on board with this. Bill would go to the streets with signs petitioning. He got two million signatures including the voice of Pope John Paul II to speak to the judges, to anyone who would listen in the state of Indiana. And in 1989, Paula Cooper was removed from death row and instead of a death sentence, was given 60 years in prison. And after serving 29 of those years, she was released in 2013. If you want to fact check this story, you want to hear about it, The author, Alex Marr, chronicled her story in the book entitled 70 Times 7, A True Story of Murder and Mercy. What I found fascinating about this was um, the author of this book is not a Christian, but her heart was grabbed by something that Peter and Jesus, this interaction that Peter and Jesus had. And Peter asked Jesus, How many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Peter's thinking like, oh, I'm going to do it seven times. It's so bold. And Jesus answered, and I tell you not seven times, but 70 times 
7. And Alex Marr, this author, was so gripped by that concept that without being a believer, wrote about Bill's story and Paula Cooper's story. And like I said earlier, if believing in Jesus leads to new life, new life really has to be new. And I think new life leads to new mercy. And so that's what I want to talk about. In your notes, here's the story of Matthew. And I'm going to read it from his memoir. So open up to Matthew chapter 9. And I call it a memoir because Matthew's the author, but it's also his story. Matthew was... um, A couple things about to know about Matthew is this, and uh, before I read you his story, let me just share some insights. Matthew was religious. He knew a lot about the Old Testament. We'll call it the Hebrew Scriptures, because Matthew wouldn't have called it the Old Testament. He just would have called it the Hebrew Scriptures, right? He knew an awful lot about it. Here's how I know this. When he writes Matthew, he has more Old Testament references than Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew's gospel is believed to be written by a Jewish, an educated Jewish man to a Jewish audience to convince this Jewish audience to follow Jesus. And so he's a religious man. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the Hebrew scriptures. He's also this, he self-identifies himself as a tax collector. So let's make sure we understand what, what, what that is. He's an employee of the Roman government. And the Romans had control, oversight, governing control over the the Jewish people and their land at the time. So this is how this works. He pays the rights to sit at the tax booth near this town called Capernaum. And he would charge merchants and travelers a duty tax for the merchandise that they carried. The way it worked was this. He would pay the Roman government a certain fee. Whatever that fee was, he would pay it. And then he would charge way above and beyond that so that he could make plenty of money for himself. Think about this for just a moment. You're a Jewish man who now works for the oppressive Roman government, and you're charging other Jewish tradesmen to bring their goods in. How is he viewed in his community? We'll get to that in just a minute. The the assumption about Matthew is this. He's absolutely driven by money. I think it's a safe assumption. Um, I want to pause for a moment because you probably heard a sermon like this before talking about Matthew and it's super easy to look down on the tax collectors and just go, scumbags, terrible. Like, how could they take advantage of other people? Uh, let's put this in context. He's a religious person who's driven by money. He, he's a religious person driven by something that might not honor God. It's not money that's evil, it's the love of money and the pursuit of it, the craving of it over God that's actually not good. I don't know about you, but when I look at it in those terms, it just simply reminds me of myself. Maybe it reminds you of you. A religious person, someone who knows the Bible, who knows the stories, who's been around the scriptures for a while, who has some spiritual practices, but is driven by something that maybe God wouldn't be honored by. Prestige, notoriety, sex in an unhealthy way, money. Don't we all find ourselves, people who are somewhat religious but driven by something else that sometimes creeps in in an unhealthy way in our lives? So I don't want us to look at Matthew and look down on him. I actually want us to be able to look at his story and identify with him. 
So we know this about him too. He's a traitor and an outcast in his society. The Jewish community, they saw him as a traitor. So people, they treated him as an outcast. Now in the story that I'm about to read, is he's gonna be described as a quote unquote sinner, all right? Now there's two words in the Greek for sinner. Amharetz is the one, and it doesn't mean like a horrible sinner. It just means like a spiritual slacker. You have like the Pharisees who are like these super uber religious and they just took so much pride in showing everybody how religious they were. And then there's other people. They didn't show up to the temple all the time. They were late for worship. They stood there with their hands in their pockets, never sang. Just kidding, I'm making this up. But they were just spiritual slackers. This hamatolos is the word for this spiritual slacker. Oh, I'm sorry, amaretz was the word for for a spiritual just slacker. But there's this other word, hamartolos. It describes the worst kind of people in society. It describes people who were criminals. And the word that they used to describe Matthew, Matthew uses it himself, was he was the worst of these criminals. But here's in the story what you're going to find out, that Matthew was also shown mercy. Matthew is shown mercy by Jesus. And he's invited to become one of Jesus' disciples. And here's what happened. It changed his life. When Luke writes Matthew's story, he states that Matthew left everything. And Jesus shows up at Matthew's house for this party. I'm about to read this story to you. And the party gives the insinuation that it's a farewell party. Jesus invited Matthew. Hey, Matthew, would you follow me? He got up, left everything behind. He's changed. He's a different man. Leaves everything behind. Has a party, not just to welcome Jesus, but to say, goodbye, all my criminal friends. I'm following Jesus. So with that in mind, I want to read this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. Pause for just a moment. I think it is safe to assume that this is not Matthew and Jesus' first interaction. Jesus, how many times had he walked through there? Like Capernaum was actually one of the home bases for Jesus where he operated out of. The assumption is that Matthew has heard him multiple times and Matthew has already decided he's more than a rabbi. He's more than a teacher. He is someone special. I don't know if he's the son of God. Maybe Matthew had come to that conclusion. But Matthew knew that man is not just someone. And who knows, maybe Matthew had already made the statement, God, forgive me. And now he's just looking for a way out of his old life and a way into a new life. And Jesus says, follow me. And that's all Matthew needed was an invitation. He goes on from there, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, this is his farewell party, many tax collectors and sinners, the worst of sinners, came and ate with him and his disciples. There's your setting. Verse 11. When the Pharisees, the uber-religious, those that made Matthew an outcast, when they saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, a couple thoughts. When they saw this, how did they see this? Maybe they were having dinner outside in a courtyard, or maybe it was just by reputation alone, like, hey, I heard Jesus was at this house. And so they don't go to Jesus and ask him the question, because that would actually take courage. And see, um, 
Judgmental people don't have that kind of courage. They go to his disciples and they say, hey, your boss, your leader, we hear that he eats with tax collectors and the worst of the worst of sinners. And then you get this amazing statement of Jesus. Get ready with your pens and highlighters. Underline this. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when he says this, and he's looking at these super uber religious men, he's like, I have not come to call the righteous. I think he's just dripping with sarcasm at this moment to go, y'all think you're so righteous? Your righteousness is not actually righteousness. It's not God's righteousness. You're actually just self-righteous. I didn't call the people who think that they're so good and so self-righteous. I actually came to call sinners, those that when they look in the mirror go, yeah, I'm broken, I'm busted, I've violated all kinds of my own moral code, much less God's moral code. So question, what do we know about Jesus? Let me give you five, five things. He invited a sinner to join him. I think it's interesting. Jesus doesn't try to tell Matthew, listen, listen, Matthew, you made a little mistake. You're not so bad. He doesn't do any of that. He, he doesn't tell Matthew that he's really a good guy. He just invites him to follow. And the rest of the story is a characterization of like, yeah, Matthew is a corrupt sinner, and so are all of his friends. Um, the, the second is this. So he invited a sinner to join him, and the second is that he befriended a group of sinners without being one of them. I think this is fascinating. And I think it's an important distinction to make because um, I've made this mistake myself, and maybe you have too. We read this story and go, oh, look, Jesus hangs out with sinners. And we go, in my life, I hang out with sinners too. I, I go befriend them just like Jesus did. But here's the distinction. When Jesus shows up with this group, he sees them as being sick. And he's the doctor who's there to help them. So when Jesus shows up in that crew, everyone looks at him and says, why is he here? Because he's different. In my life, when I tried to befriend a group of sinners, sometimes I got it right and sometimes I got it wrong. Sometimes I was there and I was just one of them. Come on now. You ever use this verse or this story as an excuse to just go hang out with the kind of people that you just want to hang out with and you're just one of them? When they look at you, do they go, oh, no, 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 they're different. We're not even sure why he's here, why she's here, because she's so different than the rest of us, but for some reason, she hangs with us. Is that your reputation with your crew? Or do they go, no, they're just like us. Listen, if you're a student in high school, you're, you're going to hang out with all kinds of people. Do they know that you're different? Because maybe you don't speak like them, act like them. And man, it's really easy to just follow the herd. Can I just speak to you for a moment? Do they see you as different? Hey, adults, we're no different than high schoolers. It's just our age. We fall under the same pressure to be like people so that we can be liked by people. I just think it's interesting that he befriended a group of sinners without being one of them. So 
Forgive me for getting too convicting here for a moment. Let's get back to this text. Jesus, he sees people as sick but savable. I think it's interesting. He doesn't make excuses for them. But he sees them as having a sickness that we later learn is this spiritual sickness called sin. But he knows that they can be saved, and he wants to help. I don't know if you've ever looked at some people and been like, wow, they're so far beyond God's reach. Then you don't know Jesus. And you actually might not even know how far you actually were from God before you ever met him. Because there's no one who is beyond the reach of God. Next thing I learned about Jesus is this. He desires mercy rather than religious, a religion devoid of love. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says this. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Did you know this? That that's actually a quote from uh, Hosea 6.6 from the Old Testament. It's a story about how religious people, they would come and bring their burnt offerings to the temple and like, oh, this is the religious sacrifice that we're all supposed to make as if that would create a right standing with God. But when they left the temple, they lived their lives however they wanted, often involved in illegal, immoral, or unethical things. To say, God, you can have my temple sacrifice, but my life is my life. Jesus quotes this from Hosea 6.6 to say, here's what I desire, mercy, not sacrifice. And I think this is what Jesus means. Please don't come to me to say I'm a follower of God. I'm a Christian. And pretend like you're right with God. And then treat everybody else so poorly. I think he deeply, deeply cares about how Christians extend mercy to one another. And he says this, go and learn what this means. I love it because he doesn't say, hey, listen, listen, from this point on, get it right. Stop doing that, start doing this. He goes, here's what I want you to do. Go and learn what this means. You know what, I think it means this. He invited people to watch for opportunities of mercy. I wonder if by the end of this message, you might pray this prayer. God, would you open my eyes for opportunities to show mercy? God, would you open my eyes for opportunities to show mercy? Um, Before you pray that, I will warn you on this, though. Um, When you look for opportunities to show mercy, it only comes because people hurt you. Let me get to that in just a minute. Immediately following the story of Matthew, still have your Bibles open, Matthew 9, 14. Look at this. Then John's disciples came and asked him. Now, when he says then, it insinuates that these stories are connected together. Then John's disciples came and they asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast another spiritual habit, another spiritual practice that oftentimes the, um, these Pharisees would do? They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays, twice a week. John's disciples asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples, they do not fast? So Matthew, he refers to this instance of religious devotion, this fasting. And Jesus tells him a story. He says this, Jesus answered, how can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he's with them? He gives a wedding illustration. Imagine a wedding with a bridegroom. Says the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. That means Jesus is gonna be taken from this earth. Then they will fast. In that illustration, what he's saying is, who goes to a wedding to say, oh man, I can't wait to go there and fast. I can't wait to go to the wedding and not eat anything. He's like, no, at a wedding, it's a celebration. We're not going to fast, we're going to feast. So he's saying, when I'm here with them at this party, think about the context, he's just at this party. He's like, we're going to party together. We're going to feast together. Why? That lost guy, Matthew, 
He's not the same. He's changed. And while I'm with them, we're going to celebrate. Jesus goes on to give them two illustrations. He says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. I know it might sound, it's hard to come up with an illustration here, but um, when I was a kid, 501 jeans from Miller's Outpost. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone under 30 is like, what's a Miller's Outpost? (laughs) They sold jeans. Um, Not only did they sell jeans, but do you remember how they sold them? Unshrunk. So you would, they would be folded up and you would unfold them and they would just be like cardboard. You could stand them up by themselves, like just boom. Do you remember how much they shrunk when you, when you put them in the wash? Three inches in the legs and one inch in the waist. So you, you couldn't even try them on because like you would put them on and they'd be like, whoa, <laughs> fold up three inches and hopefully pinch an inch right here. And then you'd, you'd wash them and they'd be like, right? And like, good luck in returning them once they're washed. I want you to imagine that unshrunk piece of denim and you're going to take a a patch like this and you're going to put it on your jeans that have a hole in them and that are pre-washed, right? And you're going to throw all of that into the wash. What's going to happen? The hole that you had here that you patched with this, that patch is going to shrink to nothing and rip your jeans apart. But once your um, jeans are really ripped apart, then they're going to be uber cool, right? What Jesus is saying here is nobody does this. You can't put the new onto the old and pretend that it all fits right. I think Jesus is making a statement about the Old Testament and the way that this Hebrew crowd was interpreting the scriptures to say we're going to be religious and we're going to create outcasts. You can't take the newness and the new life that Jesus is bringing without adding mercy and living it out. That old way of doing things, it just doesn't fit your new life. He goes on to say this, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out. The wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. The people of the day would get this. Like, oh yeah, that that wineskin, once the fermentation of the wine and how it expands and stretches the skin, that skin is no longer good for new wine. If you put new wine in it and it ferments and gases expand, it's gonna blow the whole thing up. The wine is dead and that wineskin is useless, right? What's he saying? You just can't take the old way that you were doing thing and bring it into your new life. Let me give you the the spiritual Christian interpretation of this. I think Jesus is saying this. When you find new life, when you're confronted with the mercy of Jesus for you, you can't take Jesus and tag him onto your life and pretend like the old life you have is totally acceptable. I think he invites us in our new life to a new mercy. But let me finish with this. I'm going to give you four ideas about maybe how we can apply this. And I will warn you, none of them are easy. Because a Christian life is not easy. It's a difficult life with high requirements. And so here's a couple of ideas for you. New mercy, it has to handle pain differently. Because remember, I invite you, hey, would you pray this prayer? God, would you open my eyes for opportunities to show mercy? Um. Mercy never is an opportunity without getting offended or hurt or violated. And so what are you going to do with your pain? 
Pain handled well can lead to tremendous growth and tremendous wisdom and tremendous character development. But pain can also, if not handled well, can really break you, mess with you, harm you. And so here's four ways. The first is this. New mercy handles pain differently. Disrespect is no longer met with violence. Respect's a big word today. Kids, God, treat me with respect, right? My coworkers better not disrespect me. My boss better respect me. My spouse better respect me. Guys, we would rather go unloved than disrespected. Respect is so big for us. We can actually identify it almost immediately when someone says something that is even slightly disrespectful. And oftentimes, words of disrespect are met with violence. I'm sorry, what, did you say that to me? See this? Now, maybe you're four foot two and this approach doesn't work for you. So instead of violent actions, you choose violent words. You are so... But in Jesus' world... And the life that he invites us to, disrespect is no longer met with violence, it's met with mercy. Now, please don't mistake this for not clarifying and helping a person understand that they were disrespectful. It doesn't mean you sugarcoat it, you pretend it didn't happen. I think it's absolutely okay to say, do you realize your words just stung? Because they were disrespectful. It's okay to say that. You can grow it. If you don't value that relationship, you never have to say it. If the sales clerk at the store is disrespectful, you're like, whatever, I don't care about them. Don't bring it up. But in a family, amongst friends, to bring it up is okay. But never met with violence. It has to be met with an invitation for mercy. Disloyalty is no longer met with revenge. Man, loyalty matters, wouldn't you say? It matters so much. But disloyalty is about people that we love and care about, and we want them to be loyal to us. Those that are closest to us have the power to harm us the most, don't they? Instead of this disloyalty met with revenge, Jesus invites us to meet it with mercy. Offense is no longer allowed to linger. Um, Man, our world. Sorry, I'm going to have a five-second pity party. We are jacked up, messed up, and lame. We are so easily offended. Aren't we? If you opened your social media, please don't right now. But if you did, how long would it take you to get to a, a post about how somebody was offended? Just open up the next door app. Uh-huh, amen, preach it, pastor. Here we go. Open up the next door app, and all of a sudden it's like, my neighbor, blah, 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 like, shut up and go talk to them and offer them mercy. But instead, we get offended. But here's what I'm gonna say about this. Let's no longer allow offenses to linger. And I don't know if this is you, but I struggle with this. Because in, in the middle of a conflict where I was offended by something, and I do get offended by things because sometimes I'm a middle schooler emotionally inside, and I get offended by things. Do you ever run the argument over and over again in your head? Oh, I wish I would have said this, and I'm going to come up with the 12-point outline about the 12 ways that they were wrong. And like, I don't know about you, but I have trouble shutting down that conversation in my head. Am I right? Is this just me, or is this you? Say amen. Okay, good. I almost quit. 
there's just moments where I think I'm all by myself in this, and I just realize, like, I think we struggle to shut this down. And I'm going to tell you this. um, I don't think that you can shut it down on your own power. Let me say it this way. Um, When we give space in our brains, in our hearts, and we keep saying, no, 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 I'm not going to think about it. I think mercy is this. You saying out loud, that person owes me nothing. They don't owe you an apology. They don't owe you respect, not compensation, nothing. Because listen to this. If they owe you an apology, if they owe you compensation, if they owe you respect, if they owe you anything, they actually still have power over you to hurt you. Because if they don't do the next thing how you think they should do it, you're going to be offended even more. Mercy says this, you just owe me nothing. It's hard not to have a bad attitude with this. Like, listen, my expectations of you are so low that you can't hurt me anymore. That's not a good attitude. But what if in all humility, you realize that you've offended others, that you've harmed people before, you've got it wrong before. And because of that, and because of the mercy that God has shown you, you can freely say, you owe me nothing. And maybe you owe me nothing, and I'm still even open to friendship with you. Lastly, I think abandonment no longer defines our value. It's a big word, abandonment. And I think when God shows us mercy, he shows us our value. Pastor Josh last week talked about this. When he talked about identity and Peter and how low he was and at his darkest rock bottom, bottom of the barrel moment in life where he denied Jesus. And he says, do you love me? He's like, Peter, I don't want you just to be a believer. I want you to get up and feed my sheep. For any of you who have faced abandonment in your life, it feels like the thing that defines our value. I'm not worthy because they left. I'm not worth being loved because they didn't love me well. And it's a lie. And at some point when you're given this new life in Christ, you will realize God loved you enough to send his son to die on a cross for you. He loves you and he says this about you in your life. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. You're my kid, you're my daughter, you're my son, and nobody can snatch you out of my hand because I love you and I value you. As a believer, you allow your value to be established by God, not by those who have walked away from you. And so because of that, your value is rock solidly defined. Are you with me in that? Here is my admission about all four of these scenarios. I do believe that new life leads to new mercy. And that new mercy is the mercy we're to extend to others. But here's my admission. You and I, we can't do it. We cannot, in our own power, redefine our own value. Like, oh, you're right. Being left by my dad, you're right. It no longer defines me. It no longer hurts. Oh yeah, being left by my spouse no longer defines me, no longer hurts. 
Oh yeah, being offended? I'm, I'm just gonna shut down the conversation. Oh look, it's gone. For if that works for you and you're able to, fantastic. It doesn't always work for me like that. I have to, before God, take these situations and put them in his hands and go, God, would you take this from me? I don't even know how to give it to you. At the very best, what I can do is imagine that I'm holding the hurt, the offense, the abandonment, whatever the issues are where I lack mercy and just go, God, this is it. Would you take it? And I believe this, he's got to take it from me. Because every time I feel like I've offered it up, it's like it bounces off and comes right back on me. And I will admit this. I mean, I'm not great at this, and I hope I don't offend you um, by letting you know how bad I am or weak I am in this area. It's hard for me to show mercy. But when I come back to what God has saved me from and forgiven me for, I have to keep offering these things and these broken areas and and the offenses that I feel to God so that he'll keep taking them and keeping them far from me. And that's my invitation to you today. If you're a follower of Christ, this is for you. New life leads to new mercy. And if you're not a follower of Christ because you feel unworthy, like why would God love you? You just haven't met him yet. And I hope you'll meet him right now. He loves you. In all of your brokenness and everything you've ever done, he knows it. He's seen it. He was there and watched it when it happened. And he loves you. And when you've met the risen Jesus that way and you feel his mercy and love on your life, it is so empowering to show other people mercy. The impossible life is not following Jesus and trying to be merciful. Can't do it. So today, my invitation is this. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that in your seat today, right now, he'll meet you in a fresh way and you'll give your life to him. But for those of you who are followers, if you have new life in him, are you expressing new mercy to people? And if there's a hurt that's lingering, my invitation to you is this. Would you take it and hold it before him and say, God, take this from me because I want to show mercy. And would you invite him? God, open my eyes today to see opportunities for new mercy every day. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, go, go and learn this. Let's bow our heads and pray, have our band come out. And I want to have a, a moment where instead of you listening, you actually get an opportunity to pray. So would you just bow your heads, close your eyes. And um, for those of you that you know that there's been an offense, a hurt, an abandonment, something in your life that, man, just replays in your head, I would ask you to do this. You take your hands, both of them, and put them in front of you. And I want you to imagine that person, that event, that hurt, and you're going to hold it. Sometimes, I know this might sound a little weird, but sometimes I put my hand over my heart, and I imagine myself grabbing that thing out of my heart, taking it out, and just holding it before Jesus. And Would you just do that? whatever it might be, the thing that you don't want to show mercy to. And we just invite Jesus to take it, to take it from you. And you're never going to take it back. Speak those words, that that feeling, it might return, so you're going to do this again. 
But right here in this place, I do believe by by people actively inviting Jesus to take these hurts, that there are moments where he does and he does it forever. And so would you do that? God, take this hurt. Whatever words you need to use, use your own words and pray that prayer. new life leads to new mercy, then would you be willing to grow in mercy? If so, here's a prayer. God, open my eyes. Open my eyes to opportunities for mercy. God, would you empower me in the face of disrespect, disloyalty, offense, and abandonment to be your person of mercy. Whatever words you want to use to pray that, make that claim to God. God, open our eyes to new ways that we can show you mercy. And in the midst of that, may we bring a healing power to others and demonstrate that we're different because of Jesus. And because of that, may more people, God, be drawn to you and know you and follow you. And we pray this because of the mighty name of Jesus who makes this all possible. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.